He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. E a kūrauranga tira mā, koutoura, ko tahuri mai ki te kaupapa nei, e reriana nā tai mihi, ko tiahika tēnei he kaupapa kōrero. This is tiahika ko Justine Murray, ahau. In 1995, Georgina Bayer became the mayor of Carterton, a small town in the Wairarapa. Four years later, she stood for the Labour Party and became the world's first transgender woman to enter Parliament. In this week's episode of Ma Tangirea with Scott Campbell, Bayer talks about her conservative upbringing, her sexuality, and entering the world of politics where she often felt like an outsider. Kia ora, Georgina Bayer, tuku wengua. I am uh, a takatāpui, whakawahine, of Te Atiawa, Ngāti Mūtunga, Ngāti Poroa, Ngāti Raukawa descent. I am proud and I am out. I want to start almost near the end uh, of your parliamentary time. 2004, and a memory that sticks out for me, on the forecourt of Parliament, that wave of black shirts coming up onto the forecourt and standing out there, almost alone, was you. What do you remember about that day? It was an awesome day. Um, And it was a horrifying day in many respects. The Destiny Church and the Enough is Enough march was standing up for family values and railing against the Civil Union Act that was in the process um, at the time. And this, amongst other things, sort of uh, generated this, uh, this response uh, from Brian Tamaki and his church. So about 8,000 protested that day and marched from Civic Square in Wellington. And as they were marching in Roman formation uh, through the city, they were sort of going, and enough is enough, and punching the air. But I didn't know this was happening when I went out to stand on the steps to greet them. (laughs) I would defend their right to protest. Everybody has a right to protest in a peaceful manner, and that they did. I certainly didn't agree what they were protesting against. And I wanted to be a symbol, at least standing out on the steps uh, to welcome them to the Parliament grounds, but to also send a a message that um, I'm going to stare you down. And I'm going to challenge you on that. And so I guess for me, that's what it conjures up, that memory of you being, you standing there in the face of thousands of people, a number of them shouting Mm -hmm. things at you. Absolutely. There was a lot of abuse, verbal. I I felt scared (laughs) for you at points. Where did that bravery come from? What, What the courage to stand out there in front of them? People call it courage and bravery. I just called standing up for what I thought was right. And sticks and stones, you can throw all you like at me, insults. I've dealt with worse in my past, so I can deal with that. We also had uh, pro-civil union supporters who were gathered around the Seddon statue in front of Parliament, and when the marchers arrived on parliamentary grounds, it looked like a cancer was spreading across the grass and, and everything, and our poor supporters were utterly surrounded by them and being abused by them. I guess I wanted our people there to know that I'm standing here and you can see me, I'm holding your rainbow flag, and I've had many of them say to me afterwards that they found that a very... Um, a thing that 
kept them anchored and that they were doing the right thing, despite the fact they were being abused most horribly. So I just think that symbolism of, of me being there and I'm on that side of the fence <laughs> gave them some strength. So I want to go now to your childhood then. Talk me through that. So born in Wellington uh, and a fairly rocky start from, from early on. Yes, in some respects, my uh, mother had divorced my uh, birth father, Jack Bertrand, when I was about one year old. Um, she uh, was then a solo mother in the late 1950s, was not an enviable place to be for a woman, uh, certainly not a Māori woman, and uh, she was uh, training as a nurse at Bowen Hospital at the time. And my father was sent to jail for an indiscretion. He was a policeman. And during that period, uh, she divorced him. I was put into the Newtown Salvation Army hostel facility for a period of time. My mother got herself sorted, but she was so horrified by the care that was being given to me there that she had persuaded her now quite elderly parents, having just dispatched eight children from their home, <laughs> and they agreed to whāngai me, I guess. And that's where I went uh, for probably the first four years of my life. And, and that was sort of fine. Then my mother remarried in the early 1960s to Colin Byer. And when that marriage happened, I um, was brought back down from Taranaki and began my life with this uh, new relationship. But, of course... From about the age of four, I had displayed and started to display some quite effeminate behaviour, a um, tendency towards things feminine. And while it was a bit cute for the adults around me to have me sort of dressing up and things like that, uh, when I got to about seven or eight years of age, that was then frowned upon. And that was reinforced with punishment for that kind of behaviour. Physical punishment, verbal punishment, mental cruelty, really. Not unusual for many people of my generation who went through that, who were having uh, difficulties with their gender identity as what it would turn out to be. So, so you named after your grandfather? I'm named after my mother's... Uh, sorry, my father's father. He was Lieutenant Colonel George Bertrand. He was 2IC, second in command of the 28th Māori Battalion under General Ditmer. But um, he sadly he died in a car accident in uh, 1957 the year I was born, hence why I was originally called George. And so at what point did you decide or did you notice that you wanted to be a Georgina, not a George? I probably came to that sort of, uh, that's the direction I'm going and when I was about 16, but I had no idea how to achieve that. But when you were younger, you were quite happy to dress up and you were in... Yes, but the punishment meant I started to do it secretively and... um, deviously, frankly, because if I was caught or discovered or anything like that, it would be dealt with uh, physical punishment, corporal punishment, um, beatings, hidings, things like that, to uh, beat it out of me, I suppose. And uh, quite cruel. I don't forgive my parents at all at that time for that kind of uh, behaviour then. But on the other hand, I can't really blame them. That was the convention of the day. I I soon discovered, really, that I was having to pay the price for their shame and their embarrassment. And when I relieved myself of the guilt around that, I liberated myself entirely. And I lay it on their doorstep that, uh, you know, that's actually your issue, not mine. You made it my issue by the way you reacted. Do you think back to that time and wonder what it would have been like without the beatings? And If I had been loved regardless of my um, gender issues and stuff like that, yes, it would have been vastly different. 
if there had been love rather than contempt, uh, yeah, it would have been different. Was the streets just a, I guess, a natural progression of the childhood and, and where you'd come from? No, not at all. Um, the streets would have been the last thing I'd wanted to do, but uh, the social disapproval extended into institutional prejudice and discrimination. I didn't want to be a sex worker. Oh, God, I didn't even know how to. I was too young. I, mean, I was 16 going on 17. But when I went to apply for the unemployment benefit, I was simply told, uh, well, be the man you're supposed to be and go out there and get a job. And I guess that's when I first drew a line in the sand without knowing I was making a political statement and said, no, this is who and what I am and I'm not changing it for anybody. So if I have to suffer your disapproval over this, then I guess I just have to suffer it. In other words, trannies, in many respects, were the lowest of the low. We belonged in the gutter, and that's where many of us ended up being. Living that life, and I think you've said this before, on the fringes of society, mm-hmm. did that give you drive? What did it do for you? It did give me drive, because I always went in you know, with this grudge, thinking I shouldn't have to be living like this. No human being should have to live this if they don't want to. Why can't I uh, live a conventional life when it comes to work, when it comes to just being integrated into society? This thing over my gender is what is providing the great barrier to that. And I began to think, what is the purpose of making social burdens out of people who mean no harm to anyone else, who actually do no harm to anyone else, And where is my right to be a positive participant in our society? And I thought that was wrong. So I guess I was beginning to sort of formulate, oh, an anger, really. What I learnt in my street scene, while I didn't like the work, I learnt resilience. I learnt how to tolerate and understand violence against me and abuse verbal abuse just from the general public, all of that thing that used to go on, that every time somebody said, yeah, little queer, you you poofed her down the street and that kind of thing, that knife would go through my heart of shame and, and all of that, and then one day I didn't bow my head. I looked it and stared it in the eye, and I said, you have to bleep this out. Just at a random stranger. I would, yes, I would. I mean, you'd stand at traffic lights, and there I am, all dressed up, and and I don't mean demonstratively like a full-on drag queen, but just, you know, on a normal day, a bit of makeup on, regular clothes and things like that. But somehow I'd get sprung. So when a mother standing at traffic lights pulls her children away from you, get away from that person, you know, kind of thing, the sense of a devalued human being (laughs) washes over you. I mean, drove me to suicide, you know, to attempt suicide on three times um, in my young life, uh, late teens and early 20s. I had been pack raped in Sydney in 1979, which was a terrifying, horrifying experience, and the law didn't defend me. This was in Australia and made me feel even more worthless as a person. And so you begin to ask yourself, why am I tolerating this terrible life and might as well do away with myself? It was just so easy to fall into that kind of thought. Well, thank God I didn't succeed. But it gave me the drive after those suicide attempts and all of that uh, nastiness that, that went on to 
what can I do to change this? This has to change, this has to change. And I had no idea how I would do that. So where did the next idea come from? Well, I was fortunate enough, whilst living in Auckland in the early to mid-1980s, to um, get involved in a, a short film for a television one drama series about a day in the life of a transsexual and a transvestite. And that earned me a Best Actress nomination in 1987 for our Film and Television Awards that year. And what I won was the fact that my peers in the industry at the time gave me the dignity of nominating me in the gender to which I identified. So that boosted my sense of self-esteem considerably. Throughout the 1980s, Georgina Beyer was working in a gay nightclub in Auckland, but like so many events in her life, change would be just around the corner. 1990, I found myself in uh, the Wairarapa, living in a small town called Carterton. And this is when I had decided that I was going to actually, I, I need to get some more practical skills to be able to work in the real world, and I'm doing a 20-week life skills course. 1991 budget, the mother of all budgets, Ruth Richardson's budget, which wiped about 25% off benefits. It had a devastating effect around the country. And we were climbing out of the financial crises of the 1980s. Freezing works were closing down around the country. Many people, particularly Māori, were finding themselves unemployed, displaced. And in Carterton, we experienced a little bit of homelessness. And I guess that's when I first started being involved in public life like that. And then 1992, the uh, local body elections come around and my little group of friends and colleagues at the community centre said... um, we think you should run for the local council, of which I gasped and said, are you kidding me? What the hell do they do? So, so you get there, you get to council. You've now gone from Vivian Street to Auckland and now you're in Carterton, mm-hmm. a rural, traditional, conservative place. Yes. And you're being put forward for the chains of office. I think certainly my friends around me at the time at the community centre had long put aside my colourful past and actually took more notice of the substance of the person. And because I was eloquent, I could speak well and I could sell our our pitch to council in this case, uh, they thought that I might be a good advocate because I was sort of basing a lot of my stuff around human rights, dignity, um, a cohesive community. So in 1995, I served, I did not quite a full term as a councillor, and that was my learning period, because I knew nothing about local government, I can tell you. When the mayoralty happened in 1995, I was as blown away as anybody else was that I would be successful. I had taken a risk in even running for the mayoralty, but you could run for the mayoralty and also for a council position. I felt fairly sure I'd get back on the council because I'd become popular. I was a hard-working councillor. So the mayoralty, I thought, oh, that's a bit of a push. But no, they elected me with a pretty reasonable majority. But I now was in this position and I thrived in it. Why? I just loved the contact with the people. I was consensus person. I was a participatory democracy person. I wanted people to know and understand what the hell it is we do. And I want your input. I'm begging for your input. Where most councillors say, oh, yes, yes, we'll just keep it over there. No, I want it. And I started to do things that was sort of unconventional for that particular, you know, council at the time, allowing people to have their say. No stranger to colourful situations, 
1999, the Mayor threw her hat into the ring to become a Member of Parliament. But first, she had to beat her National Party opponent. Oh, by the way, that National Party candidate happened to be one Paul Henry, broadcaster and man of many opinions. He was running around in his gold Mercedes, preaching family values up and down the electorate. And we had our first television outing as candidates in that seat for that election on the Paul Holmes show. And he made at least one, probably two big gaffes on that outing. Uh, when asked about, um, oh, Georgina Byers had a very interesting and exciting life. And he was sort of, oh, yes, well, yes, Georgina has had an interesting life, but then again, so have I, and at least at the end of the day, I'm still a man. Went down like a tonne of bricks. Rumour has it that Shipley, English and Creech were in the PM's office watching Henry's first outing as a candidate for them, and apparently the campaign manager turned around and said, I think we just lost the wire wrapper. And not just lost the water upper. You gave him quite a hiding. I did. I came in with a 3,000 majority, and we won the party vote uh, by about 1,000. So that was, like, unheard of um, for Labour in the wider upper at that time under MMP. So I think people looked at the substance of the person. I was someone that would do things and get things done and give it my best shot they had watched and observed me doing that as a mayor and as a civic person, and that I also had some, excuse the term, some balls about me, and they like that. <laughs> so people appreciated that you had the balls to come here and make a difference, and you did from the moment you stepped in here. Mm. Your maiden speech is still being talked about to this day. Where did the famous line come from? I have no idea. I don't know, but just me, my warped sense of humour, I don't know. But I went in with a thought, OK, OK, this is major. How am I going to break the ice as far as my gender is concerned in this place? The countries, this parliaments, the world's first transsexual woman to be serving in this place. And so what am I going to do here to break the ice with the homophobes, with the transphobes, with the conservative nature of many members, even including in the Labour Party? So humour has always been a fabulous way of breaking down the tension. Do you remember the line? I do. I said something along the lines of, uh, Mr Speaker, this is the stallion that became a gelding and then a mare. And now I seem to have found myself to be a member. And everyone cracked up. And it did break the ice. And so people didn't have to walk on eggshells around me or vice versa. (laughs) So in your eight years here, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of delivering a lot for my electorate, I think, at the time, whether it comes to new hospitals, whether it came to roading infrastructure and things like that. So electorate-wise, me and my staff worked our butts off to deliver as best we could, and we loved it. We thrived in it. We thoroughly enjoyed doing that. In fact, I've always sort of said, if I could have actually spent 60 or 70% of my time doing my pastoral work in the electorate, oh, my parliamentary life would have been fantastic. Uh, But no, half the time has to be spent here in Parliament, and that's part of the job. Uh, Proud to have been support uh, behind uh, Tim Barnett when civil unions came along. That was another incremental step towards uh, marriage equality, which came ten or so years later. And very proud, given my um, early background in the sex industry, to have been a strong advocate for prostitution reform. I mean, you talk about my highlights while being in Parliament. There were also some quite lowlights, and Foreshore and Seabed would have to be one of those. In 2004, the Labour government legislated away the ability of Māori to test their rights to the foreshore and seabed before the courts. 
pitting Labour's Māori caucus against their own constituents. Ah, a disaster. An absolute nightmare. The Māori caucus of the day, of which it was quite a large chunk at that time of uh, the New Zealand Labour Party, we were all quite taken aback that an announcement had been made, no consultation with anyone in the Māori caucus, but at the end of the day, it was one of the largest uh, proposed confiscations from Māori um, in modern times. And I was in a very strange position. I was Māori, yes, I held a general seat. My seats and constituents were telling me, you vote in favour. I didn't hold a Māori constituency. I had no mandate from Māori to speak up strongly on their behalf like the rest of my colleagues did. I was just so torn. But actually, I didn't have to be steeped in tikanga Māori to understand that this was wrong, wrong, wrong. And I vowed and declared from that time on that I would never be torn between who and what I am as far as my heritage is concerned and political expediency. What was your relationship like with Helen Clark before that? And what was it like after? I was never very close to Helen. I was not within her inner, outer or extra outer circle, really. I was just cannon fodder backbench MP. I was quite a loner, a lonely person as far as being a member of caucus. And I, a lot of distrust went on because I would be closer to some people than others. But then you soon learn not to confide too much uh, because that could be used against you in some way. And who's going to go pss, 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 pss? Back in Helen's ear. Ms. Byer became further isolated from Clark when she asked to abstain from the vote for the foreshore and seabed legislation. Her request was rejected and the bill was passed into law. I can almost pinpoint my beginning of the end of my political career in Parliament on that foreshore and seabed thing. I felt defeated and I felt impotent. And come 2005, when I, I wanted to stand down then, I did stand down from the seat, but I got persuaded to return uh, on the list after the 2005 election because I had acquitted myself so well during the Enough is Enough march and all of that advocacy I did standing up for the human rights of the rainbow community, but uh, significant minorities in general. And so I came back and it was sort of a much tidier way for me to leave Parliament without causing a by-election or anything like that. What would you have liked to have done in Parliament? Anything else? Are there any regrets that you have? I wonder if I could have done more. I did a lot of travel. Uh, Helen did allow me to travel overseas whenever I had an invitation. So I was doing United Nations stuff. I was doing um, HIV and AIDS stuff. And I was out there as the world's first transsexual, not only selling what we do in our country very well, but also telling the story. I remember even after I'd finished in Parliament, I got invited to go to Nepal by one of their first out gay MPs, Sunil Babu Pant, because they were writing their new constitution after the monarchy had collapsed. And they were proposing to include what was called the third gender to be protected in their constitution. And because I was the world's first transsexual woman, etc., they thought it might be quite good that I come over. I met with their president, which was more of a courtesy call, met with their prime minister. And Sunil would say to me now that that meeting influenced, you know, what happened with that part of the Constitution. They were the first country in the world to um, include the third gender in their Constitution for protection, and India followed soon after. So those kinds of little things that you can do and be a part of in other countries is really, you know, an amazing opportunity. Going forward, what's your legacy going to be? What are you wanting to do? 
Well, what I need to do is shut up for a while. Um, there's a new generation of transgender activists, and I'm glad, although I don't always agree with some of these new transgender activists uh, that have come along and are still pushing um, the barrow on what I would call the minutiae of stuff that needs to be tidied up, I'm pleased that my legacy for them has been uh, that I trailblazed and, and started a pathway, not just for them to have a voice, uh, a voice that's heard and listened to, but for the world, we now have numerous transgender people who are elected to their um, legislatures around the world. I was the first for about three or four years until someone in Poland got elected, until someone in Italy got elected, and now they're sort of everywhere. We now have our first transgender US senator. Do you think George, at four or five, will be proud? I think he might be, and unexpectedly so. <laughs> You know, you've got to live on the edge of it, and that's what life is, is sort of about. And I'm glad that, yes, I've faced a lot of adversity, but you can't live in your victimhood all the time. You can't wallow in it. You've got to learn from it, move on and change it, and change what, you know, created that. And I hope I've been able to do a bit of that. Kia ora. Scott Campbell with Georgina Bayer, former Labour MP, former Mayor of Carterton, Law Tiatiawa, Ngati Mutunga, Ngati Puro, Mingati Rokawa. Now, that interview is part of the political legacy series, Ma Tangirea. Now, you can watch all of the episodes on the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Next week. And our school was called Fakarawa Native School. Fakarawa Temonga. And the school was uh, built underneath it. And I remember distinctly, and I'll never forget the times that <clears throat> uh, I was told when we got off our horse at the gate, uh, mm-hmm. translated, leave your horse outside the gate, leave your language outside the gate, leave your culture outside the gate because you're entering a different world. And uh, that was my beginning of an attempt by the Crown to disempower me. For Matitai Tokino MP for the Labour Party, Dover Samuels joins Mihinarangi Forbes. Kuina te kaupapa, hei te rawiki. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can, of course, email tehika at rnz.co.nz. You can download the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts. Ko te tūmana ko ia kai te noho ora pai e koutou, kia u te manawarere, tēnā tātou katoa. Katoa.